0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Several years ago, um, I was preparing for a trip to, uh, with, a, with a team to do a short-term trip in India to help train uh, village pastors there. We were going to host a seminar and do some biblical training for them. And um, just a week or so before we were getting ready to leave, we got the news that one of the pastors that was going to be at the seminar... Uh, had been uh, brutally attacked in his village by a mob and beaten so severely that he was hospitalized with some pretty massive wounds. They actually had sent a couple images that we saw, and it was pretty startling, Um, and it kind of rose up a little bit of the nerves for all of us that were going, but we kind of hopped on the plane and and headed over there, the few of us. And uh, when we got there, Uh, there was a really tangible kind of sobriety around the pastors that week as we spent time with them, both in just the reality that happened to one of their brothers, to what they were facing, to just the persecution that many of them faced for their faith in Jesus. And I remember being on that trip just so tangibly impacted by the reality that These brothers served churches, just like I was serving a church at the time, and yet their context and reality was so different. Just for trying to pastor people and proclaim the gospel, they faced abject hostility, rejection, even physical attack, just for being followers of Jesus. For many Christians worldwide, the threat of persecution is a constant reality in their discipleship of Jesus. In fact, Open Doors International, which is an organization that studies and documents the reality of, persecuted, of the persecuted church, estimates that one in seven Christians are persecuted worldwide and that more than 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination around the world. Now, while we don't have those same experiences in the West, it's important to remember that so many of our brothers and sisters, this is their daily reality. They wake up in hostile cultures. This morning, we woke up and gathered in this room, free of our own will. Nobody was stopping us at the door. There's no threat of anyone barging in. For literally millions, hundreds of millions of Christians this morning who gather on a Sunday just like we do to worship Jesus, they do so under the threat of persecution, wondering if someone will come in the door, wondering as they walk into someone's home if they'll be stopped on the way in. And if that's your daily reality, what motivates you to pursue faithfulness in your life and the mission of God when the pressure and persecution that you face is so high? I mean, that's not a question just for those in persecution. In many ways, that's a question for all Christians. All Christians face pressure from the power and people around us to succumb to their vision of the world, to follow their values, to abandon the way of Jesus and to follow a different path. So what actually motivates and can help motivate us towards faithfulness in the life and mission that God has called us to? We're in the middle of this series, All Things New, where we're looking at the last four chapters of the book of Revelation, the end of the scriptures. And in this book, the Apostle John writes to a group of seven churches who are facing pressure and hostility in their Culture. They're facing the daily reality of rejection for what it means to follow Jesus in their Roman culture. These churches were tempted to abandon the way. And yet John writes to them to motivate them, to encourage them. One of the major themes of his letter is that they would overcome or conquer the challenges that they face. And part of the reason John, part of the way John writes to them is providing for them a vision both of what is and ultimately what will be when God makes all things new so that they will, bring, they will remain faithful in their present context. John is already encouraged towards the end of the book to pursue their, or for them to pursue faithfulness by overcoming, by reminding them that Jesus is going to return one day, and that when he does, he is going to defeat the spiritual enemies of God. This is what we looked at last week in Revelation 19. But beyond merely the defeat of his enemies, John, in our passage today, begins to help envision for the churches what Jesus' return will really mean for the entire world and for the earth. And what he wants to show them, well, actually, what he wants them to help them see in their mind's eye, and imagination is a day when Christ will reign in a millennial kingdom. That part of what will come at the end is that Christ will reign in a millennial kingdom. Now, you might be thinking at this point, why on earth would that be encouraging to John's audience? And how can that be encouraging to me in my day? And I think to answer that, we need to walk through our text and see some really key things. But before we do that, I need to just make one aside on this passage. Because Revelation 20, 1 through 6, is one of the most debated passages in Scripture. In this passage, the term millennium, which simply means a thousand years, is a phrase that's repeated five times. And many trees have died, and much ink has been spilled, seeking to interpret these six verses in light of the millennium it discusses. In fact, there are entire theological systems that are built merely on how people interpret these six verses of Revelation. Maybe some of you have heard terms like, premillennialism, or amillennialism, or postmillennialism. Maybe you're not familiar with any of those terms, and that's totally okay. You might be better off because you just get a clean slate this morning. Right? But, but there's some decent theological systems that have been built. And I don't want to diminish those, but I think oftentimes when it comes to this passage, if we go right to theological systems, we often miss the deeper reality of why this passage is here and what it's meant to do for us in our journey of following Jesus. Oftentimes we can rush to try to put a whole bunch of pieces in place— and oftentimes, one of the major questions that people have is, when is the millennium? Is it before? Is it not? Is it post? What, where do we happen? But when we start with the question of when, we often miss the better questions, which is what and why. What is this passage saying? And why does John have it here? Why is it important for us? So this morning, I really want to look at this passage with those questions in mind. What? and why. And I think a good starting point for us as we enter into the text is just simply to ask the question, what marks this millennial kingdom? What is John describing here? And I think as we understand the what, we'll begin to unpack a little bit of the why and how that helps us as we face pressure in our day in following after Jesus. So look with me again at Revelation chapter 20. John begins, then I saw, now, remember, this is the fifth of, or fourth of seven visions that John gives in Revelation 19 through 20. He continues at the end of the book to help his audience envision, envision, envision. This is what I saw. This is what I saw, right? He's trying to get your imagination active because he wants to help you envision what's going to come. He says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon." that's coming on the heels of Christ's return, where God will begin to deal with his chief arch enemy, right? If you remember last week, we unpacked that in the book of Revelation, John pictures three key spiritual enemies that come against God and his kingdom, a dragon and two beasts, right? The beast of the sea is the power and authority in our world, the rules and rulers that seek to stand opposed to Christ and his kingdom in the way of God. The beast of the land is the false religion or false belief systems that undergird those powers and authorities that seek to deceive the nation into not worshiping God, but actually worshiping the beast. But above all of those is the dragon, the arch enemy of old. In fact, he's referred to not only here, but earlier in Revelation chapter 12 with these repeated titles the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan john repeats these names to help you see that who he's talking about here is the enemy of god and of his people from the very beginning remember in creation the serpent from the very beginning was seeking to deceive that's actually a spiritual being who stood against god's people throughout all that time he's referred to as the devil or the satan Not Satan, it's the Satan. That's actually a mistranslation in English. There's always the article because it's not a name, it's a title. The devil and the Satan both mean the same thing essentially, accuser or adversary. And he's pictured in Revelation as a dragon. At the end of the day, he is the arch enemy of God. And what John pictures here then is that there is a day coming after Christ's return when this archenemy of God is bound, and he uses some really key terms, he's bound, he's thrown into a pit. The pit is used throughout Revelation to picture as the dwelling place or home of evil. And then that that pit is shut and sealed for a time in which the Satan remains there. What John pictures here, they're all symbolic descriptions. Remember, high symbolism in the book of Revelation. It's used to describe a severe, if not total, restraint of the devil's power and influence. John gives us a very clear reason for why this will take place. Verse 3, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Much has been discussed about what it means that the devil will not deceive the nations. However, John seems to actually give us a clue in verse 8 of its meaning, because when he's released at the very end of all things, and we'll look at those verses next week, When he's released, at the very end of all things, he leads in deceiving the nations to come and bring a final attack against God and his people and God's city. So it seems that Satan is actually bound from deceiving the the nations for a time, a thousand years—talk about that in a second, right? Lots of symbolism—for a thousand years where he will not be able to deceive and lead the nations to come against Christ, to come against his people, and to come against his kingdom. Because— When that happens, it will prompt the end of all things. It will prompt God's final judgment and his final removal of all evil. And so God has delayed that throughout this millennium period for purposes, as we'll we'll continue to see in a moment. The text notes that this binding is for, again, a thousand years And there's often a lot of discussion. Is this a binding for a literal thousand years or a figurative thousand years? Is it symbolic? What is this? I don't see why it can't be both. But again, I want to focus more on the question of why is this number used? In Jewish writing, a thousand years is a symbol of God's time, right? Both Psalm 90 and 2 Peter chapter 3 reference that a day... To the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. It's used as a symbol to say, God doesn't operate on our time. He operates on his own time, right? I don't know if you know this. God doesn't work on your timeline? Like, I mean, I wish he worked on mine. I've got some great ideas for God's timeline, but that's not how he moves. And, and so this reminder is, wait, there, there is actually an, a, a symbol here of God's time. And the symbol is meant to communicate an immense and a, an ideal state of time that's marked by the reign of the Messiah. It's marking an actual reign on earth of the Messiah for a thousand years. And it's used here in contrast to many numbers that are used earlier in the book. Do you have earlier numbers in the book, right? You have days, you have weeks, you have a time, a time and a half. You have a lot of symbolic numbers for how God is going to work. But then you get to the end of the book You get to the point of the Messiah's reign, and John says, it's a thousand years. This is on God's timeline, and this is the ideal state and place in which the Messiah is beginning to reign on earth. So it's symbolic of his reign, and it's for this thousand years, Satan is bound, and the Messiah is reigning on earth. And what John wants to emphasize is that because of this, Satan has cast a decisive blow, and in fact, his power's actually been removed. He he wants to motivate his audience in the call to conquer and overcome by helping them see there's going to be a day where Jesus is reigning on earth and where Satan's power is diminished. Because the reality is, in our journey of following Jesus, we face the pressure of spiritual forces and darkness. But... There's a day coming where they will no longer have the power, which helps you say, continue the fight now. Maybe imagine it like this. Imagine you were in a boxing match, and you were facing a very severe opponent. Like, it's you versus Ivan Drago from Rocky IV, right? Like, and for the first couple rounds, you're just getting it handed to you. Like, you are just getting slaughtered, beat, face bruised, bloodied, cut. You, you finally, after a couple rounds, get to your corner, and you turn to your manager, and you're like, listen, man, I'm done. Like, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. This is too much. I don't have any hope in this match. Like, let's just call it quits. It's over, right? And imagine your manager looked at you, and he said, hey, hey listen, here's the deal. Um, the judges realize that uh, Yvonne over here has actually been illegally juicing up this whole time. And he's not fighting a fair fight here. So they've decided to teach him a lesson that what they're gonna do is, in the eighth round, he actually has to fight with his hands tied behind his back. Now how does that change how you fight if you knew that's coming? Well, now you're like, oh, okay, I can endure this. I can take some shots now. and, And I can even fight back a little bit, right? Because I know at some point, every little jab I get now, when the eighth round comes, I get the free swing, right? Like I get to take this guy out. It motivates you in the present to know there's a time coming when your enemy will not have the power that he thinks he has. And so what John is trying to tell you is, hey, don't give in to the world. Don't give in to the pressure. Don't succumb to the persecution because that's not what's eternal. There's going to be a day where that power is removed. So continue the fight because often in the journey of following Jesus, the power and pressure that we get from both the enemy and the world, it can feel overwhelming and it can tempt us to throw in the towel, right? Why continue to fight for justice against those who traffic humans when it feels like there's no ability to actually overcome the insurmountable reality of the millions that suffer from it? Why continue the fight against sin when we struggle so often in our own hearts to just do what the simple things that God tells us to do? Why continue to suffer rejection and persecution for our faith when we can simply just deny Jesus and accept and, and, and experience acceptance and peace? Why sacrifice and suffer to bring the gospel to the nations when we face such strong opposition in so many places, right? All those things can feel, leave us feel like the devil is winning and he's going to win. But what John is trying to say to those back then and to us now is no, no, no. That is not how this thing plays out. He doesn't win. In fact, there's a time coming when Jesus will return, where he will establish his millennial kingdom and where the enemy will be bound. And when that day, that fight for justice, that fight against sin, it will begin to see and experience the fullness of what God has promised for his people and for his world. So keep pressing on keep conquering because in the millennial kingdom of christ satan will be bound but the binding of satan is not the only what that john wants his audience to be motivated and encouraged by in their overcoming because he also wants them to see not only will satan be bound but ultimately saints will reign with the victorious king look at verse four then i saw another vision another invitation for what you see This is the first resurrection. So again, John lays out his fifth of his seven visions here. And here he sees thrones, a symbol of reigning. And those who reign have been given the authority to judge. The imagery that John has here is drawing from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, God had given a vision when his Messiah would return and he would establish his rule and reign. And in that passage, it makes reference that his holy ones, that's the idea of saints. Saints just means holy ones. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. There's no special class of saints. That just means it's a reference for God's people. But he says that his holy ones would reign with the Messiah. Scripture and Revelation promise that there is going to be a day where God's people will reign with Jesus. And this is what's pictured here. But as John highlights those that reign, he also pulls out kind of a, a, a part of them to kind of highlight what marks this group of people, those that follow Jesus. Right? He references seeing the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God. John highlights in his description of all who are faithful. We see that it's all, right? Because it's also those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads. But he highlights at the beginning those who had suffered the ultimate price in their discipleship and following of Jesus. Those who were killed for their faith. It's in this that John is trying to exemplify that those that receive the reign to come are those who are faithful and victorious in their overcoming, who do not bow to the way of the dragon or the beasts, but continue to follow Jesus. They are not marked by the beast, but instead are marked by the lamb. Again, a lot has been discussed around the mark of the beast. But in John, what you have to realize in Revelation is that everyone in the book is marked. There's not just some people who are marked. Everyone is marked. And everyone is marked by one of two things. You are either marked by the lamb, you are sealed by him, you are part of team Jesus, or you are marked by the beast, or the dragon, or the way against the lamb, right? There, there's not a middle group. So the only way that you're not marked by the beast is that you're marked by the lamb, which means you've given your allegiance and your faith to following Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that, then you're marked by the beast, right? And, and so in John, it, the, the mark of the beast is not some like, thing you don't realize like happens, right? It's, it's not like just a, a tattoo or a shot that you get or a microchip implanted in your head. It's anybody that doesn't follow Jesus is marked by the beast. If you follow Jesus, you've been marked by the lamb and therefore you are not marked by the beast. And if that's you, the promise to come is that you will be resurrected to a reign with Jesus. Jesus. So what John's trying to help you say is there's a day coming when Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, and part of that kingdom is those that have been faithful to him. Those who have not followed the way of the beast ultimately will get to experience that reign by ruling with Christ. It's meant to motivate our faithfulness now in anticipation of the reward to come. That's why John ends in verse 6 and says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. He wants you to see, be faithful, because in your faithfulness, there is blessing to come. And he marks three key blessings. One, you will experience the first resurrection. And what does he say? Over such, the second death has no power. Those that are raised to rule with Christ will experience a resurrection to eternal life. There's two resurrections in the book of Revelation. We'll see the second one. There's the resurrection unto eternal life, those that reign with Christ, and there's those who are resurrected to judgment. The second death, which is in the lake of fire, which is the ultimate death because it is the separation from God, the source of life. Friends, your death on earth is not the thing you should be most afraid of. Do not fear what can kill your body. Fear what can destroy your soul which is your abandoning of the way of God and rejecting Christ that results in a second death. What John wants to motivate you to say is if you're faithful to Christ, you won't experience that. The good news for you today is you do not have to experience the second death. That does not have to be your reality. You can put your faith in Jesus today, begin to experience his eternal life now, and anticipate a day where God will resurrect you into his kingdom to rule and reign in the new heaven and new earth for eternity, where you will experience the eternal acceptance of God, not the eternal rejection of him. So be faithful now. The second thing it says, they will be priests of God and of Christ. So we will... Oh, and the third thing, they will reign with him for a thousand years. What's pictured here that we'll be priests and that we rule is that we will be restored back to our original design purpose. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, where God created everything, this was his vision for humanity, that they would have access to the tree of life, to live eternally with him at the center, that they would be his priests to serve him in the garden and extend the garden outside to the whole world and that they would rule and reign under his rule and reign so that all of creation would flourish. What John wants to help you see is when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, those who are faithful to him, they will be restored to that purpose. They will have eternal life. They will be God's priests in the fullness of what it means. They will be ruling with him to bring flourishing to the earth. So it's a motivation to say, look at the reward that is ahead of you. Look at the world to come when Jesus is reigning and you're reigning with him. Oftentimes, we motivate ourselves by the vision of what we believe the future holds. Maybe think of it like this. Um, In the uh, dystopian young adult novels, The Hunger Games, The world finds itself, and North America primarily, finds itself in a place of unjust rule. The capital controls everything. It's a place of flourishing. All the districts around it are subject to the capital and experience pretty horrible injustice and reality and poverty, so much so that once a year they have to submit two of their children to compete in a Hunger Games to the death, right? It's actually a fascinating critique on our culture, but that's a whole whole other game. So the book kind of centers on Katniss Everdeen, her participation in the game, but slowly grows in their movement towards revolution against the Capitol and Panem. And one of their cries, if you ever watch the movies, that I think is captivating and a good illustration of this is the vision that they hold out in front of them for why they pursue this revolution is a free Panem that they envision a day where freedom would come and justice would reign and things would be righteous and that there would be this free Panem and a flourishing for all. And as they pursue that, it motivates them to persevere in the face of great opposition from the Capitol. In fact, Katniss highlights this in one of her quotes in the, the book Mockingjay. She says at one point, what I need is the dandelion in the spring." the bright yellow that means rebirth instead of destruction the promise that life can go on no matter how bad our losses that it can be good again see see how the vision of the future of what could be empowers their faithful perseverance through the battles that ensue what john is trying to pers- provide you is a vision of that world picture a world where jesus is reigning not where under authorities are reigning, not where injustice is reigning, not where Washington is reigning or Russia or anyone else. Picture a day when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is reigning over the world. What would that world look like? What would happen in that day? And then he says, but here's the thing, you'll get to reign with him. You'll get to be part of that. You see, oftentimes, when it comes to the battles we face now to succumb to the power and pressure of the enemy of the world around us, what he wants to do in his deception is rob us of the vision of the world to come. Because if he can remove the vision at the end, he can take your hope now. And if he takes your hope, he's got you. Because there is nothing, nothing more destructive than hopelessness. And so what John wants to say to those who face persecution, to those who face pressure, to those who face the battles of the world is to say, listen, don't give up on the vision. Satan doesn't get all the power forever. And the powers that rule our world now, they will not rule forever. Jesus will rule. Jesus will reign. Jesus will establish his kingdom And it's in this millennium kingdom that he will work to begin to transform the earth into the new heaven and new earth that God has intended. And we're going to see how that unfolds in the weeks to come. But what John wants to motivate you now is, yes, Christ reigns in a millennial kingdom, but your faithfulness now means you'll get the opportunity to join him in that reign. I mean, this is what he says earlier in the book. In Revelation chapter three, John's writing, or Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea, and this is one whack church, right? Jesus essentially says, listen, you're neither hot nor cold. You're like a bad, lukewarm water that I want to spit out of your mouth. Like, this isn't high praise. They're not the most faithful group at this point. But listen to what he motivates them with at the end. Verse 21, he says this, the one who conquers, or you could say the one who overcomes is another way to say that. So the one who is faithful, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquer and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do, do you hear the promise of Christ? Like the King of kings and Lord of lords who will return defeat his enemies, and establish God's kingdom forever, holds out a promise to the one who overcomes and says, I'll let you sit on my throne. Like you'll get a reign with me. I mean, if there's a throne you want to sit on, it's not the Game of Thrones throne. It's that throne. It's the throne of eternity that will rule with justice and righteousness and faithfulness that will establish God's purposes fully and finally. And so John wants to say, be faithful now. Remain faithful. Don't give up on the vision to come so that you can enjoy the blessing of resurrection. So you can be restored to your purpose to be a priest for our God and so that you might reign with him on his throne for eternity. Friends, we praise pressure all the time. I mean, we're in a month right now in our culture where they are pressuring us, pressuring us to reject God's vision for human sexuality and human flourishing. Everywhere you look and everywhere you turn, and what they want to tell you is, just just accept it. Just come. It's fine. You don't need to stand up. And you feel that pressure just like I do. And we have brothers and sisters who face way worse pressure than that who literally faced the threat of death for just naming the name of Christ. And so the world's constantly trying to push and push and push. John wants to come and say, hey, listen, I know you feel the pressure, but be remembered, there's a day where that pressure ends. There's a day where Satan is bound. There's a day where Jesus reigns and rules, and you can be part of that. And you don't have to wait all the way for that day. You can begin to experience the taste of that now in anticipation of what will come. Because what is going to come is going to be way better than anything the earth has experienced yet. Let me leave you with this encouragement from Professor Fanning Boyce in his commentary on Revelation. I think it's a good reminder for our faithful endurance. Revelation 20 is part of a consistent biblical paradigm that human glory does not come from self-exaltation, but from submission to God as supreme and from obedience to him despite harsh opposition. Paul's opinion is profoundly true that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. In our present groaning and longing for complete redemption for ourselves and for the whole creation, we must live in hope. That eager expectation of what we do not yet possess, but can be confident of in Christ. God is refining our character even now through our faithful endurance of suffering. But the best is yet to be. See, we have hope that the best is yet to be because we know a Savior who already conquered sin and death and who rose again. And he invites us to follow him with our own faithful endurance to experience the glory of the kingdom to come. So may we all be found faithful in our perseverance to the victorious King. Let me pray for us. God, it is my prayer this morning that you would motivate each one of us to be faithful in our following of you. God, I'm grateful for this vision. I long for the day when you will return, when you will reign on this earth, when you will establish your kingdom. And God, how I long to sit on that throne with you. And not just alone, but with my brothers and sisters in the faith to rule and reign, to see creation restored, to see justice and righteousness reign over this earth, to see flourishing brought back to creation. God, I pray that you would help motivate us with your vision for the end. Not only this, but even in the weeks to come, how much the enemy wants to rob our hope now, but I pray instead you would help us to hold fast first to Christ, to what he has done for us in his death, to the reality of his resurrection. But you would also help us hold fast to the day when he will return and we will see him reign again on earth. God, help us to be faithful. Help us not to give in to pressure. Help us not to give up on truth. Help us not to turn from righteousness. Instead, strengthen us, Lord, by your power. Help us to be people of endurance. Help us to persevere. Even now, as we prepare to sing, would you use this song as just a motivation to remind us of the true kingship of Jesus? that there is no rule, no power, no authority on this earth that is above him, but he is the true king, and that there will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Help us to hold fast to that truth, God. Even instill it in our hearts now as we sing, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' good name.